why would we be wanting to read other religions like you know pagan rituals all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. doesn't that seem dangerous or wrong mm -hmm. in your eyes we have to go through you if we want to understand the bible mm -hmm. for the most of history you'd have situations where people just wouldn't be able to understand the bible like wouldn't it make more sense for god to make it clear for everyone Hey everyone, this is What's Your Pastor, and today I'm talking with Kyle of Beneath the Bible. We're going to be talking about why studying scholarship, archaeology, and the ancient Near East is so important for Christians. Kyle, how are you doing today? Can you give us a little bit about your background as far as education and pastoring? Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for having me on, uh, Zach. Um, yeah, so I um, have a degree in religious studies uh, from the University of Kansas, uh, my bachelor's degree. Uh, and then I have a Master of Divinity from Duke University Divinity School. Um, and I've been in pastoral ministry for 10 years now. Uh, for the last eight and a half years, um, I've have been associate pastor at Bear Valley Community Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, and my responsibilities include adult discipleship, uh, youth ministry, um, some administration, um, and kind of whatever else gets thrown at me. Yeah, one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on here today is because you have a YouTube channel from mm -hmm. uh, Beneath the Bible, uh, along which you, I guess, co-host with mm -hmm. the archaeologist, Philip, that we um, I interviewed before. and. Mm -hmm. um, you are, you provide a very uh, cool insight as far as you're talking with the lay people. You're talking about the people that maybe don't understand, you know, the scholarly realm of things and aren't reading all these scholarly books. But you also, you know, you're friends with an archaeologist. You've you've got some education, so you've studied some topics, so you can be that intermediary. That um, so you're not like you know out in scholarly lands, uh, <laughs> away from the lay people and. Uh, so this will be an interesting conversation here. So question for you, mm -hmm. why should we care about archaeology, ancient Near East, all that kind of stuff? Sure. Well, I think, I mean, it starts with just recognizing that the Bible is a really old book uh, and it was written in a, a time and a place that's very different from our own. Now, I mean, I believe that God inspired the Bible and still speaks to it today through us. Um, but I also you know, have come to understand that uh, in order to really read the Bible well, it helps a lot to to know kind of the world that it came out of, what were the people thinking, uh, what was going on around them, um, in the, the people groups around them, and historically, what were they experiencing? Um, and, you know, I think better understanding the world of the Bible really helps us see how it's still relevant to our lives uh, today, because, you know, the, the time and the place has uh, changed a lot, um, but you know, human nature and um, the things that that we experience uh, are are common, like, like we find with so much ancient literature, common experience across millennia. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. So it's been our aim with beneath the Bible, which we've been doing for a couple of years now, to to help um, bring that scholarly insight uh, to bear on the way uh, and helping people read the Bible better today. Yeah, for sure. And of course, there's there's an aspect of like, through all archaeology, we can understand like, the, the Bible is more reliable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I mean, I think, you know, we, we recognize that the composition and redaction of the Bible was a, was a long process. Um, but, you know, we also have lots of, of archaeological material that 
um, help us to know that the the Bible we have today is very very close to uh, you know at least as once it reached its canonical form, it's been passed along very faithfully. Um, so you know the Dead Sea Scrolls would be a good example. We have uh, partial texts at least for every book in the Old Testament except for Esther, um, and so we get to to see that you know that was uh, the were, were written you know, first, second century around the time of, of Jesus and that the text that we have in something like the Dead Sea Scrolls is, you know, you know, very close in a lot of ways to what we still have um, today. And also recognizing, you know, there is, there is some um, development early on as well in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and so recognizing that, yeah, help, helps us to um, to better understand the Bible that we have today. You know, if we're going to say that there are things outside the Bible that help us understand the Bible better, doesn't that mm -hmm. seem to say that we're adding to the Bible? Mm. Yeah, well, I think I would say we're we're adding to the body of knowledge that we have about the world of the Bible. Um, so a lot of what we talk about on our channel it, it has to do with, um, you know, what a lot of stuff we do is kind of old testament period late bronze age iron age biblical world um and so better understanding that world and and things from surrounding cultures that you know we see clearly influence the writers of the bible but then also uh one thing something that we want to dig into is the ways that um the israelites took kind of that common cultural world that they shared with the people around them and really there are unique developments and and distinctives uh, that really set the Israelites apart from uh, the people around them in the way that they they take this common worldview and these common stories and themes and um, bring it to bear on uh, their understanding of who God is um, and you know and I I believe that you know God was at work through that process, through this chosen people, setting them apart while at the same time they were very much people of their time and place. Could you by chance give us a couple of exa examples, just whatever comes to mm -hmm. mind of something where we have taken a certain view, mm -hmm. we, you know, we think that's, you know, that's what the Bible says, and then we study archaeology or, mm -hmm. you know, other other texts outside the Bible, and then we realize, oh, that's not actually what it means. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think um, Genesis one is a good example, and I know you've talked with John Walton and have have covered Genesis one um, a lot. But I think that's a really good example where um, you know the the traditional doctrine or kind of what we grow up hearing about is uh, creatio ex nihilo, creation out of nothing, and you find that in in the Bible. You look someplace like Colossians 1, where it talks about creation um, as coming from nothing. But you don't find that in Genesis 1. Uh, and so when you understand what the ancient Near Eastern um, worldview or cosmology was, um, then it, it really helps to illuminate um, the, all the action that's going on in Genesis 1. Uh, and so we have, rather than nothing, we have these chaotic, non-ordered, primordial waters uh, and the the spirit of God, the ruach of God, goes about um, putting order to this chaos. 
Um, and so, you know, in, in that process, these, these waters are separated and the, you know, the, the ancient Near Eastern cosmologies that we kind of live in this, in an air bubble in the middle of these primordial waters. Um, and, you know, that there's, there's the dry land and the water above and the water beneath um, and, and then everything else that's made uh, within that bubble, basically. Um, and, it, and it's a very different picture of God's creative activity than, than what we typically think of. Um, and, you know, Genesis 1 is, is taking these other creation myths, uh, you know, the, the Baal cycle and things like that, um, that we have talked about on our channel, um, and it adapts it in unique ways. Um, all these other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, you see there's um, conflict between these gods or, you know, divine or supernatural beings. And it's out of this, this conflict that the world is brought into order and human beings are made to serve the gods. Um, but, you know, in, in Genesis, there is no divine being um, except God. And God is in total control. God simply speaks. Um, and the chaos is brought into order. Um, and, you know, that's a very different picture of, of God, of the nature of God than what we get in all of the other ancient Near Eastern creation myths. Um, and so I think that's a really good example of, of what we talk about by, you know, the, the Israelites shared this common cosmology or worldview with the people around them. And they, they take these older stories and concepts, say about creation mythology, and they, they adapt it in unique ways to their understanding of who God is. Yeah, another interesting one that uh, we talked about previously was the idea of a unicorn and mm -hmm. you know, the, the KJV translation. Um, can you talk about that? Sure, yeah. So um, yeah, there are several verses in the KJV that refer to um, a unicorn. Uh, but in, in modern English translations, it's, it's usually translated wild ox. Um, and uh, there's this Hebrew word, ra'em, which refers to this creature. Um, and what it's actually referring to is um, a wild a, a wild ox, a species of wild ox called an aurochs. Um, and, you know, this was a massive ox creature, untamable. Um, and we see it a lot in ancient literature as representing um, power and strength and you know, untamable might. Um, and so it's, it's used, you know, poetically or allegorically in several places in the Old Testament. Um, but this, you know, this, this aurochs existed in the ancient Near East in the wild, uh, but it was extinct by the time that we have English translations coming along, like you know, the KJV and previous English translations. Um, and so, you know, these English translators come across this word, Ra'em, and they have no idea what this creature is. An interesting thing is that um, in a lot of those places where the word Ra'em is used, it talks about the horn of this creature and the horn singular rather than plural. I mean, you know, the aurochs had two horns, like any other cow, but uh, the Hebrew uses a singular word. Um, and so if you're living in England in the 17th century, you know, kind of coming out of uh, the Renaissance and with this medieval heritage and mythology, 
what one horned creature are you going to think of other than a unicorn, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, th that's how it ends up in, in the KJV that, to, that it talks about a unicorn um, in several of these places. Um, and I mean, there, there's still this same kind of mythic quality to the unicorn, a, a fictional creature um, that, you know, makes the translation make sense until, you know, later scholarship helps us understand what this creature actually was uh, and to, to make more accurate modern translations. Off the top of my head, another one, Leviathan's a great example. Yeah, um, yeah. You guys have done a lot of work on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. And so Leviathan seems to be the um, a remnant. Yeah, you know, there's there's this idea of a of a sea monster or a sea dragon uh, in a lot of these ancient Near Eastern creation myths, um, and often that that plays a prominent role in um, in this conflict that leads to the the ordering of of creation. Um, and of course, there are no other, no other divine beings, no competing beings in Genesis one, um, nothing that, that rivals God, uh, and God's creative work. Uh, and so Leviathan, where we see it in the old Testament almost seems to be this, uh, like a bit of a holdover from, um, from these other creation myths and this idea of a sea dragon or a sea monster. Um, and yet it's, it's always talked about in in a way that you know it's this untamable force that you know, humans could never conquer and yet uh you know in in job it talks about you know god made made leviathan to play in the sea you know that that it's no even this this great creature um that's far too powerful for humans to overcome is is no threat to god um you know it's it's like god's god's pet or god's plaything <laughs> rather than um, a, a competing uh, divine being. Yeah, I mean, that one's pretty, I mean, maybe not to everyone listening, but I mean, that's pretty yeah. much incontroversial in scholarship as far as like, um, I mean, we have Ugar using the same words as twisting mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's fleeing or something. When you smote Latanu, the fleeing serpent, annihilated the twisting serpent, the dominant one who has seven heads. Something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then we have you know, it's the same, it's use the same letters in, mm -hmm. uh, in the language they use. So, yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's a, a direct influence from surrounding ancient Near Eastern culture. Um, and yet the, you know, the Israelites understand that, you know, while these other people see the, see this creature as, um, you know, divine or in, in some way, um, competing with the gods or in conflict with the gods, you know, it's, it's nothing to Yahweh, you know? Right, so that's about three examples of mm -hmm. things where we had previously completely different view, and mm -hmm. then scholarship, archaeology comes along, mm -hmm. and at least two out of three are, are pretty incontroversial as far as mm -hmm. what they were referring yeah. to. Um, mm -hmm. So those are great examples of how important it is if we want to understand what the original writers were intending, if we mm -hmm. want to understand what God was intending, Mm -hmm. then we, then it's really important to get into the eyes of the ancient Israelite instead mm -hmm. of reading it mm -hmm. reading in our 21st century lens and all that kind of stuff yeah and and I think um you know as we we think about that and we think about the role of archaeology and and scholarship and understanding the Bible um you, you know I don't think that there's there's you know the we've had the this Bible for two thousand three thousand years 
And for most of that time, people have been reading it. Um, you know, originally we're reading it in the cultural context in which it was written, but but for a long time in in very different cultures and contexts. Um, and so, you know, I don't think there's anything um, and, and reading it faithfully, living faithfully to God. Um, I, I don't think there's anything scholarly or archaeologically that we would uncover that would like drastically alter the interpretation or the meaning of a text. But I do think um, and what we want to do with our channel is to kind of uncover those layers um, and to to better understand what's what's really going on in the text so we can read it better. Um, but, you know, we're certainly able to, to read the Bible faithfully and to to live faithfully without, um, you know, it's not essential to the life of faith. I would say, but but it certainly can can help make us better readers of the Bible. Right. So on that topic, could you briefly talk about like what is the perspicuity of Scripture? What does that mean? And is that something mm -hmm. you hold to and all that kind of stuff? Um, yeah. Could you elaborate on what you mean by that? So generally, in you know, in these kind of conversations, when we're talking mm -hmm. about like oh, ancient Near East, read that to understand the mm -hmm. Bible. Um, mm -hmm. You know, a common phrase is like oh, so. I thought the the Bible was supposed to be clear for everyone mm, across all mm -hmm. generations. And mm, mm -hmm. if if we're asking other, you know, if we have to read the Bible or if we have to read other cultures to understand the Bible, mm -hmm. doesn't that mean that like we're missing a lot? And um, mm. like we're, we're, you get into the idea of like, you know, what is the like the traditional view, I, as I understand, it, is that perspicuity mm -hmm. of scripture is that scripture um, is clear in, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. uh, in the salvation aspects of, you know, mm -hmm. anyone can read it and get the aspect of, all right, we need to be saved through Christ and, and mm -hmm. all that. Sure. Um, so any thoughts on that one? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think um, John Wesley, who was a and priest in the Church of England and founder of, of the Methodist movement that continues in the Methodist and, and Wesleyan churches today. Um, and, you know, lots of people have said something to this effect, but he lived in the 18th century, um, largely before the advent of, of modern biblical scholarship. Um, and yeah, the way he talked about the Bible is that it's, it, it contains all the knowledge that we need. It's, it's sufficient for our salvation and for faithful living. So he, he expressed that sentiment, uh, more or less. Um, so that, yeah, and, and I think that gets back to, you know, what I said that the Bible was written um, and takes place in a very different time and culture than our own. Uh, and yet what it says um, about human nature um, and about, you know, above and beyond that, about what it means to be a human being in relationship with God, that carries across time. And I agree definitely that that's that's something we can can grasp from the pages of Scripture and and from you know the the testimony of God's Spirit in us um, that yeah we we can understand what we need to understand and know what we need to know for for our salvation and in order to live faithfully um, and yeah that that any sort of scholarly work can can just enhance um our our depth of understanding of the bible yeah gotcha so a lot of times when we get into these discussions of looking into other cultures what mm -hmm. we're doing is necessarily 
I, I mean, the Bible is a religious text, so mm-hmm. naturally the, the inclination is, okay, look at other religious texts and what mm-hmm. did they think about religion? Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it gets a little tricky because you're like, why would we be wanting to read other religions, like, you know, pagan rituals, all that kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. Doesn't that seem dangerous or wrong mm-hmm. in your eyes? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, there's a... Um, there's a difference between reading for information and reading for formation. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's good to, to study those other texts and to do, you know, to do comparative religious studies. Um, you know, my degree in religious studies is, is from a a public university. And and so there's no sort of sectarian or, um, or that sort of inclination. So, so that's kind of like how I was, trained as an undergraduate was comparative religion and um and more more that approach to religious studies rather than uh what i got in seminary um and i think they're both valuable um so that you know we can we can read other texts for information um but i think as far as formation like like how does god work in shaping us to be the kind of faithful people that God wants us to be, um, you know, that's where I think the the unique ins- inspiration of of the Bible and it's um, that it is a, a living word for us today. Um, and so, you know, I think as as long as we put our our formation um, or we put information within the context of formation, then yeah, we can we can read and explore and study all these these different texts and gain some valuable um, insights and understanding about the world that, that they came from um, while also, you know, being careful about what we allow to, to form us, to form our character and to form us as uh, faithful, faithful people, faithful followers of Jesus. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. So another thing is the question of, how we should look at these texts you got into mm-hmm. um you got into that a little bit but mm-hmm. part of it is like we obviously we don't want to see these other well i guess i should reframe it you know when we read these scholarly books and mm-hmm. what we're doing is we look at something like genesis and then we look at another creation account from other mm-hmm. culture it's almost mm-hmm. like we're putting on those those two on the same level of mm-hmm. uh it almost sometimes it'll, it's almost portrayed as, okay, so Genesis is true and this is how they thought. So that's true too. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. like, are obviously they're not both inspired. So how should we look at that? Sure. Um, yeah. I, I wouldn't put them on the same level. Like, I mean, I believe that what Genesis tells us about human nature and human nature in, in relationship to God and the ways that we fall short of the glory of God, that's all true that that informs my understanding of of what it means to be a human being in relationship to god um and that's that's a matter of formation that that in genesis we see god's purpose for humankind and the ways that we messed it up right (laughs) um and so you know we can read another text you know, say you know the, the baal cycle is one of those or the uh, epic of gilgamesh or a couple of those other ancient near eastern myths that that have parallels with with the bible um 
yeah, yeah, we can read those for information, you know, to better understand, you know, and, and we can see the points of, of commonality and influence between those other texts and the Bible, but ultimately, you know, the, the Bible is authoritative for us as believers in a way that those other texts aren't. That makes sense too. So, um, if you're asking us to pay attention to these other texts outside the Bible, mm -hmm. sure, there's that part of it, but a lot of times it's through the lens of whether it be you or other scholars, mm -hmm. essentially what you're saying is that we have to listen to Bible scholars mm -hmm. to understand the Bible. And mm -hmm. we have to go, I mean, almost it kind of seems to the outside looking in, it seems almost prideful. Like we have to go through you if we want to understand the Bible. Mm. Can you talk about that? Like how you feel about that idea? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, um, you know, the Bible, as I understand it, you know, the Bible is a book that was written by communities in community, and it's meant to be read and interpreted in community. Um, that, you know, we're, we're certainly capable of, you know, personal Bible study is hugely important for our formation, but we're not made to, um, to do Christian life alone. Um, and you know, that we need the, we need each other's perspectives really, you know, in order to, to better read and understand and apply the Bible to our own lives. Um, and so I would, I would say, yeah, I don't want to put scholarship up on a pedestal and you know i'm a good protestant i'm not <laughs> like elevating anybody to a position of absolute authority but um but i do think you know that the scholarly community can be part of that community of faith that helps us read and interpret the bible better just like you know we would get together with a group of of friends and and share um and you know discern god's truth from reading the text together. Um, yeah, I would, I would see scholarship as, you know, added to um, that, that body of conversation partners who can help us understand the Bible better, but not, certainly not with like an absolute authority that, you know, you have to read it this way, or you're wrong, or you're condemned, or what have you. So for sure, uh, you brought up something really important that I haven't heard before. So it's the idea that the original purpose was to be to be read in groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's very true. I mean, you talk about mm -hmm. in the forming of scripture, like mm -hmm. it, they didn't have like tons and tons of Bibles around mm -hmm. that, you know, yeah, sure. You could go to maybe a temple or, mm -hmm. or um, I guess you could go to one of the teachers and look at one of the original scripts mm -hmm. or copies or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, when we see in the Bible, we see, uh, scripture being read aloud to people, people groups. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in the New Testament, when, you know, Paul's writing these letters, they'll be read, read aloud to the entire church. Mm -hmm. And so what yeah. naturally what's going to happen is you're going to have the, the group of talking and mm -hmm. understanding what that is. And that's very mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah, I like that idea. So another thing that people struggle with is the idea that um, the scripture is you know, a, a common phrase we'll hear is scripture should be clear to the youngest person, to the oldest person. Mm. And um, see, we talked about 
you know, the perspicuity of like what what scripture is meant to convey. Um, but at the same time, it's almost like, you know, why would God do it in such a way that, you know, for for the most of history, you'd have situations where people just wouldn't be able to understand the Bible. Like, wouldn't it make more sense for God to make it clear for everyone? Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there are, I think it kind of circles back to to that, what we just talked about, you know, the Bible is meant for, by communities, for communities. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I mean, the the Bible, you know, it's it's written at an adult level and, and at a time largely when, when literacy was was not nearly as widespread as it is today in most parts of the world um and so it was a practical necessity for people to um you know whoever can read read the scriptures to to the community uh and help them understand it um and you know hide it in your heart memorize it um carry it with you in that way um and you know that in numerous places, you know, parents are tasked with the formation of their children, you know, even before they can read, if they're ever even in a position socially where they would be learning to read apart from like, you know, how to do business transactions and, and basic math and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I don't think we should discount the capacity for God to work through community in that way. Um, just as we value the, you know, the ability of God to, to speak to us and to relate to us individually. Um, you know, the, the people of Israel are the community that God called together and formed and the church is the community of people who are, are called out to, as followers of Jesus. Um, and so, um, yeah, the, the clarity of the scripture, I think is only enhanced by our discernment together. Um, and that we, yeah, we, we need one another, um, in order to, to read the scriptures well. Um, and you know, my kids are not to the age where where they can read yet but it's part of my responsibility as, as a parent to to form their faith um and to be a trustworthy guide even before they're able to um to read and to experience god's word for themselves yeah so on the topic of something like you have archaeology coming in and mm-hmm. really giving a, a better understanding of the text um, this has brought some interesting conversation as far as Second Timothy three sixteen goes, because mm-hmm. it says all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, mm-hmm. and training in righteousness. Mm-hmm. And the question becomes, how is something profitable for teaching and correction if we don't even understand what it means? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And you know, Paul's, you. Know, I think it's, I, I would say with confidence that Paul is talking about the Old Testament there, what we would call the Old Testament, because that was the Bible he had and knew and had memorized. Um, maybe he had some sense that what he was writing was was part of um, 
that body of literature for the formation of God's people as well. Um, but, um, okay, so getting back to your original question, uh, you know, I think that it's still, you know, a lot of scripture um, is, I would say, straight straightforward. You look at, um, you look at the Sermon on the Mount, and you read it and you wonder if Jesus is like serious about us living that way. But it's, you know, it, he's um, pretty straightforward in, in what he says and, and in what he teaches. Uh, and so that's useful for, um, for our formation into Christ likeness, um, apart from, apart from needing any sort of like specialized training or special body of, of knowledge in order to understand it. Um, you know, you, you look at the, at the Torah and the laws of the old, old Testament. Um, and of course, Paul's in that conversation where he's grappling with how the law applies, um, to, to believers and to believers in Jesus and especially to, to Gentiles. But, um, you know, a lot of those things are, are straightforward and the ones and the things that they're debating and wondering about, they're doing that as a community together. Um, and so I think for, for things to be useful for teaching, reproof, correction, um, there's a whole lot, um, you know, that if we say the Bible is sufficient for our salvation and for, for faithful living, um, the, the clear parts or the straightforward parts help to form us so that we can understand those more complicated or, or less clear parts, um, or the parts that are, you know, that are helped by having scholarship and archeology span to, to help us understand them. Yeah. Well, on the topics of, you know, you have Genesis one, the, mm -hmm. the unicorn, mm -hmm. uh, the Leviathan, you know, all those things I would say are still useful for teaching mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. everything that second Timothy describes, even if we don't fully understand, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, most of the references to Leviathan and the, the unicorn are, um, you know, an analogy to say that just mm -hmm. God is so great, or um, mm -hmm. uh, I can't remember exactly about the unicorn, but it's something along those lines. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, and then Genesis one, of course, is you know God's the creator of the universe, and what mm -hmm. exactly that means is a different question. But sure, yeah, I, I think that's it. And I, I hesitated to to answer by like saying there, there's one category of scripture that's like for our formation, and then there's you know this other category of stuff that's helped scholarship helps us to understand i don't want to make that stark of a contrast but i do think um yeah the things that that are best illuminated by modern scholarship you know are not things that fundamentally change the the meaning or the interpretation of of the text um, they're, I kind of want to say, yeah, like, they're not, um, you know, Paul, when he writes second Timothy, I don't think he has in mind, um, a 
like a particular understanding of um you know asher of veneration from the early iron age as a contrast to yahweh worship or things things like that um because paul's writing you know 500 to a thousand years on from when the bible that he read was was written it, he's in a different time and place and he's doing um that interpretive work and passing it along to others um and so paul's having to do that work himself and so i think when he writes that you know he he understands that um not everything is clear or straightforward but the things that are um help us to to discern and to understand the things that aren't yeah for sure so i'm sure you know this um you know scholars archaeologists they say crazy things all the time okay <laughs> so how can you say that how, how can you say that we should trust them if there's mm. a there's a, a solid chance that they're going to say something crazy like we just should should we just trust them no matter what or how does that work well um i mean it depends on how you um what you consider to be something crazy uh you know i i think um you know jesus said flat out and you, you know drawing on on the old testament tradition to to love the lord our god with all our minds um and so i think scholarship is um is a way you know done done rightly and faithfully is a way to love god with with all our minds um yeah, and I think that you know modern scholarship, the way it's developed over the last say 150 years, um, has developed trustworthy methods for you know. So take archaeology. A lot of even modern archaeology started out as um, looting, pretty much, or you know, going in and and trying to find evidence that fit a particular worldview or model or a particular reading of scripture and there are people doing archaeology who still are doing that today um i would say for for us um on our channel we try to steer away from that and to um to engage the work of you know christian and secular scholars who are you know using methods and interpretive practices that deal with the data we have rather than fitting it into a particular interpretive framework with that said we all have our interpretive frameworks right um but i do think that trustworthy scholarship operates in a way whether it's being done by by believers or non-believers you know it operates in a way that's that's consistent that other scholars can can look at the evidence and see how those conclusions were drawn um, in a way that's transparent peer-reviewed things like that um and, and so i think you know there are there are those trustworthy methods for adding to our body of knowledge um and that you know especially understanding the way that works can help us know who and and what to to trust uh from the scholarly community yeah so i guess it gets it gets into two parts so you have one mm -hmm. you have the actual archaeology which mm -hmm. is you know a pretty sound method of um you know getting trustworthy data mm -hmm. on the other hand you have to 
uh, make interpretations on that data. Mm-hmm. So that kind of gets where it gets fuzzy and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you talked about, you know, people that aren't Christians, uh, you know, first Corinthians two fourteen says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So, you know, many people will, you know, say that if we shouldn't be listening to un- non-Christians, people that aren't Christians, when talking about the Bible, just because, you know, they're, it's foolishness to them. They don't understand it. They can't understand. They don't have the Holy Spirit. Like, do you think that they can understand it? How does that exactly work? Doesn't that seem to contradict with the Bible? Mm. Well, I think that's, that's where wisdom and discernment as believers comes in that, um, you know, we do have the spirit of God to, to guide us. And so I think we don't have to, um, you know, I don't think we have to fear knowledge gained from outside sources, I guess. Um, you know, I think that's, that's submitted to, um, our formation, as Christians, um, but, and, um, you know, I think one way I've heard it put is, you know, all truth is God's truth. You know, if something's true, it's true because God made it to be true, whether that's, you know, particular archeological data or (laughs) the, the truth and trustworthiness of, of the Bible. And of course those are on two different levels, but, um, you know, if we find something to be true and helpful for us, and again, we're, we're discerning in, um, the sources we listen to, um, you know, I think scholarship from, from across the board can be helpful to us. Uh, that's another one of those information versus formation points, I think. Um, you know, I'm not going to read, um, the, you know, the, the work of, well, probably any archeologist, but you you know, um, it's, they're not writing for spiritual formation, for example, they're writing to inform. Um, and so we can take that information and, uh, work to, to understand it, um, and, and see where we can incorporate it into, to our own body of knowledge. Um, and yet, you know, the, it's, purpose is not to, to form us in the way that that's the purpose of scripture. So. Yeah. So Leviticus twenty twenty six says, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Mm-hmm. So many people find it crazy to think that we should be looking at this archeology, span these other cultures, other religions, because the Israelites weren't in this or They'd say that the Israelites were set apart. God set them apart. So it's, it's a different culture. So even if they have some similarities, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's different. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I think um, probably something that is helpful, um, a book I read for my Old Testament survey uh, in seminary uh, by Pete Enns, who I think you've covered a little bit of, of his work, Um an earlier book of his called inspiration and incarnation. Um, and in it, he, he kind of fleshes out this analogy. Um, and it's an analogy. There's a point where it breaks down, but I think it's help a helpful one. 
is that, you know, as Christians, we confess that Jesus is both fully divine and fully human. Um, and the analogy that, that he draws out is that's a helpful way for us to understand the Bible as well, that it's, it's fully divine and inspired by God and, and useful for, for our formation and for our salvation, uh, that that's its purpose. And yet it's also, in a sense, fully human. It's written by people in a particular time and place and context. Uh, and that we should expect them to, to not, you know, even though God has set them apart, they're not isolated. They're not you know, living in a bubble up in the hill country of, of um, Palestine or, uh, or of the Levant. Um, that, that there are people that God called out of a particular context. Uh, and so the, the ways that they are influenced and draw on um, the practices of the people around them. Um, yeah, there, there are lots of similarities, uh, but I do think, um, and something that we try, like I've said, we try to draw out on our channel is the ways that the Israelites take those beliefs and practices and how their, um, their belief in Yahweh and their faithfulness to Yahweh, um, and, and I believe God working through this process to, to, to take these outside influences and to reinterpret them and incorporate them uh, in unique ways that, um, that reveal the truth of who God really is. Um, so, you know, there's a, um, you know, the, the, the sacrificial system, uh, temples, uh, places of worship, um, a lot of those bear similarities, you know, between, you know, Israelite culture and Canaanite culture or the culture of, of surrounding people groups, you know, the presence of, of the priesthood or a class of priests, uh, the way that governance works with covenants and, uh, such, and the way that, that the Israelites are politically in relationship with surrounding people groups, um, all those fit within the, their particular time and, and context. Um, and so studying that context can, can help us better understand how the Israelites were a people of, of their own time and place. Uh, and yet, um, like we've talked about with, with the ways that they adapt ancient Near Eastern creation stories, uh, to give a very unique picture of, of who God is very different than that of surrounding people groups. Uh, the ways that, that, you know, they condemn things like child sacrifice. Uh, you know, I think the, the sacrifice or the binding of Isaac is, is a story that, that reinforces that within Israelite culture, um, that, um, you know, God does not demand human life uh, for in order to be obedient or um, for the atonement of the Israelites' sins, that you know the, the animals are offered as a substitute, um, and also another thing would be the the um, caution uh, or or almost the negativity with which. The Old Testament views the Israelite monarchy um, that it's it's not God's God's will for them to have a human king like everybody else. Um, 
and of course, you know, if, if, if kind of the consensus of modern scholarship is that this, you know, Israelite history at least comes together in its final form after the exile, they're looking back and, and reading their history and writing it as, okay, what went wrong? <laughs> well, we got a king and the king, you know, we wanted to be like everybody else. And um, rather than being God's set apart people uh, and the ambiguity of the kingship, whereas you know, kings were viewed as semi-divine beings by the people surrounding um, the Israelites. Um, and so, yeah, on, on the surface, there are a lot of similarities and influences. Um, but so much of the Old Testament deals with, yeah, there are these similarities and they're not always good. Like, you know, um, you know, Asherah worship, uh, Baal worship were present in Israel, um, just like in surrounding people groups. And it's a bad thing, <laughs> like, um, you know, almost universally across the Old Testament that the, there are all of these similarities and yet the, you know, and and this is in reaction to the the experience of of exile, that um, when the the Israelites failed to live as set apart people, things did not go well for them, and so there there's that back and forth dynamic. Um, so scholarship can tell you there are all these similarities and influences um, on the Israelites. Uh, and that there are also all these unique views that the Israelites have. Uh, but when you go and read the scripture, you realize, yeah, all those things existed. Um, but maybe it really wasn't what God wanted for God's people in that time. Yeah, so that's definitely something worth mentioning is that, um, I mean, when you talk about, uh, there's almost, I don't know if it's a recent trend or how long it's been going mm -hmm. on, but scholarship has been, mm -hmm. some scholars have been trying to make the point that mm -hmm. the, the Israelites, they weren't monotheistic to start out with. They were polytheistic. And then, yep. and then, you know, it got updated and changed later into making mm -hmm. it look like it was monotheistic. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, from the very beginning, the very beginning of, of Israel writing out right out of the Exodus, they had issues with polytheism. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. so it's, it's almost like that's what you would expect if you actually read mm -hmm. what the Bible says. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, it is worth mentioning that there are specific parts where uh, it seems that God explicitly commanded for the Israelites to do things the same way as mm -hmm. other nations. I mean, mm -hmm. you, talk, you mentioned the temple, you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, sacrifice, you know, as far mm -hmm. as animals go. Um, I mean, it's an extremely long list that, that mm -hmm. I'll be doing a video on later, but yeah, um, it seems like, it seems almost weird to say that God would command them to do that, but also be saying, hey, you should be set apart. Mm, um, mm -hmm. So the way I describe it, maybe you can give me some feedback on it, is mm -hmm. it seems like that people, you know, if if we want to say that the the Israelites were coming right out of the Exodus, you know, there are people surrounded by, you know, Babylonians, Egyptians, all these different cultures. And, you know, of course, then you, you know, have the time period where they're in Canaan and um, that land, the promised lands. So they're surrounded by all these different cultures. Mm -hmm. So for God to come in and I would say 
would call it a commendation where they're um, mm-hmm. God saying, hey, all right, so I already see that this is how it looks like you see worship. So I will accommodate and mm-hmm. um, if that's how you see worship, then you worship me in that way, essentially, mm-hmm. but without, you know, the obviously the polytheism involved. Is that a good way to describe it or would you describe it differently? Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a really good way to, to think about it is, um, yeah, that God, um, because God chose this particular people in this particular time and place. Uh, yeah. Accommodation probably is a pretty good word for it. It's like, you know, they have a particular worldview and practices, you know, worship practices and things like that that are familiar to them. And so, so yeah, God works, I, I think works, um, works through what they already know in order to reveal who God, the, the fullness of who God really is. Um, and of course, you know, we, we get, you know, I believe we, we don't get the, the full picture of who God is until Jesus comes along. Um, and, and Jesus too, you know, he's, um, a first century Palestinian man, uh, from Galilee. And, and so God comes to earth in a particular time and place. Uh, and so, yeah, I think God works and, and What's comforting to me about that is that I think that means it's still true in our lives today that God works in the particularities of, of who we are and where we are. Um, you know, that God would would choose this particular people and work through them and what they already know and where they are. And then out of that people, God comes incarnate to earth at a particular time and place. And, and as a, a person who is not not like an alien dropped out of heaven, right? With all this, you know, with a completely different understanding of, of the world, but, but, you know, that Jesus being fully human is, is very much a person of his time and place. And, um, the first century worldview is reflected in the things that, that he does and teaches and, um, that God comes into reality and works through it rather than dropping in something totally incomprehensible to people in their time and place you know yeah i think that's a great response um so but that really brings us back to the original verse where it says i have set you apart from the nations to be Mm -hmm. my own so Mm -hmm. if they had it seems like they haven't been set apart but they have so Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And what is your understanding of what that means? Like, what have they mm-hmm. been set apart from? Yeah, um, I mean, they've been set apart, set apart for God and God's purposes. Um, and that holiness is a gift that God gives to them. You know, it, it says in Leviticus, you know, God, God says, be holy as I am holy. I'm the Lord, your God who makes you holy so that holiness being set apart is God's work in the life of, of God's people, um, rather than something they have to achieve for themselves. Um, and so holiness is something that God works in their, in their community, in their nation, in individuals, um, even as God is working within the context of, of where they are, um, that it's, it's a reality of their lives in relation to the people around them. 
but even more than that, it's it's the reality of their relationship to God, that they are a special people set apart for God's purpose. So you're a pastor. Mm -hmm. um, you you talk with, I guess, the, the lay people, the, the people that aren't surrounded by a bunch of scholars and all that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, there's going to be times where people have, I guess, doubts from from what they've learned about what scholars say and all that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, can you possibly talk about like some experiences with that and how do you usually go about mm -hmm. handling that? Yeah. So I, I think um, there are some conversations I've had where, where even I've like recommended books that we talked about, like inspiration and incarnation is still on loan to someone. So <laughs> I'll get it back one day. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's helpful. Um, and, you know, when I first was discerning a call to ministry, um, I thought that I was going to you know, do a PhD and go teach at a university. And so I really have valued scholarship for a long time. Um, but now, you know, I really see it as part of my calling to, um, to kind of be that, that bridge for people from, you know, scholarship and things that are new to them and things that maybe they don't understand to, okay, what, what can we take from this and what do we need to leave behind? Um, what, what about this can help us better understand the Bible and, and help to, to form us as, as better followers of Jesus. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it, it's a lot of things that, that you've talked about already. Um, you know, how do we understand Genesis in relation to modern science? How do we, uh, how do we deal with slavery in the old Testament? Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's those sorts of, of questions, you know, where it seems like what the Bible says runs totally counter to our modern sensibilities. And so, um, I think it's just kind of my kind of my personality too. It's like, okay, how how can these work together? You know, do we have to understand these as opposed to one another, or is there a way that that um, the Bible can inform our understanding of of these other um, of where we are today? Um, and so, yeah, I think to kind of um, like I said before, yeah, you know, maybe to help people not be afraid of these other sources of knowledge and influence, because I, I really think that we can approach them and understand them within the context of um, of the life we're living uh, as followers of Jesus. Yeah, it really gets into, I guess, well, one you definitely have to understand, you know, the material first. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And of course, a lot of times you get this pushback from people that are against scholarship because, you know, a lot of times it's just a straight, I, I don't understand it, but mm -hmm. it looks bad. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to yeah. disregard it. Mm -hmm. um, so in that place, like you're in a really good spot that you can help people, you can be the intermediary, mm -hmm. but also you can make sure that mm -hmm. you can educate them and help them understand like mm -hmm. what the Bible really is and all that. And that's mm -hmm. really cool for sure. Yeah. 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 And something I enjoy doing. So yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. That's all the questions I have for you, Kyle. I really appreciate you coming on here. Um, is there any last thoughts you want to share? Yeah. One thing I thought about kind of as we were getting ready for today, um, you know, Dallas Willard, who is one of my favorite contemporary Christian writers, um, he said something to the effect of um, 
following Jesus helps us understand how to live in reality. Um, and that's a as opposed to, you know, misconceptions we might have from other influences, uh, as opposed to, um, any sort of thinking that I think kind of removes us from the world the way it really is. Um, and so to me, you know, scholarship, archeology, span when it's done well, and when we take time to, to discern and to, to understand what it can contribute, um, scientific knowledge, you know, that's part of reality. Um, our capacity to explore and to understand um, our world is something that's unique to us as human beings. Uh, but reality also includes the present kingdom of God um, and the eventual, you know, the victory of God at the end of, of history. You know, that's reality too for us as, as believers. Um, and so, you know, I think the things we've talked about today are sources that can help us understand reality, understand history and the way things have actually happened. Um, and, but the purpose of, of the Bible and of Christian community, uh, is to help us bring all those things under the umbrella of the ultimate reality of, of life in the kingdom of God. Very well said. Oh, once again, appreciate you coming on. Is there anywhere you would like to share as far as uh, ways we can get in contact with you or your channel? Uh, sure. Yeah. So we're um, on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash beneath the Bible. Uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at beneath the Bible. You can follow us there too. Um, we, we've kind of taken the summer off. I've, I've been busy with church stuff. Philip has been uh, busy finally being back on site, back on a dig. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to have uh, some good stuff, uh, good new stuff uh, coming out uh, as we get into the fall uh, and a couple years of uh, of stuff that we've already done uh, for you to to dig into some of the stuff that we've talked about today, if you're interested. Awesome. All right. Well, once again, thank you. And um, I hope you have a great rest of your day there, Kyle. Thanks, Zach. You too.